to five minutes ago. When I was teaching yesterday in, um, in San Francisco at this uh, conference for people who work with people who are bereaved, I talked about, it, it said on my program, uh, when I arrived, they said, okay, here's the morning, and it says, Sylvia will teach a contemplative practice, Mark will lead a, com a contemplative movement practice, Sylvia will teach, Mark will lead that, and then it says, Sylvia will give a Dharma talk. As if there's something that you could say that would be different from the contemplative practice or different from the other <laughs> remarks that would somehow be more holy or somehow have been ratcheted up because this is the Dharma talk. And uh, I talked about the fact that a Dharma talk traditionally, the word Dharma uh, is, a, is, the, is, the, um, is a variation of the word Dhamma, which is a Sanskrit word, which means uh, the truth of things, how things are. And uh, so when people say, I'm studying the Dharma, they most specifically mean what the Buddha taught about how things are, not about gravity or about uh, chemistry, or, uh, but that particular corpus of knowledge. And on retreats, uh, the, when you read a schedule, it says you do this, 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 and then it says Dharma talk. And normally people are talking about what the Buddha specifically taught in this or that sermon. We'll talk about uh, the, the Sermon on Loving Kindness in a minute, the universal sermon, the Buddha's teaching on universal love, which I think is the whole of the Dharma, really. But um, the Dharma talk takes on tremendous significance on a retreat, because, among other things, I don't, it's, it's the biggest input of stimuli in the whole day. So people wait for that because finally someone is saying something interesting because the rest of the time it's only your own mind that's talking to you all the time. So it's a respite from that. But, uh, but I, I seriously feel, and I seriously told that group yesterday that, in the, that we have this meeting every Wednesday and that the form of the meeting is in the first hour we sit, in the second hour I am presumed to be giving a Dharma talk, but that in the last uh, five or ten minutes of the time that we sit, I suggest to people, I invite people to share what's on their mind, not, uh, not, not, not connected to the fact that we've been sitting, that it seems to me that it's in the nature of human beings when it's certainly my experience that if my mind and body calm down and I feel a little bit okay, what it naturally does, my mind, is it thinks about the people that I know that are not so okay. It's as if I, I'm uh, released from the bondage of self-preoccupation when I feel at ease. And I'd start naturally to think about other people. Someone told me, uh, 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 apropos of... Uh, the word humility, but I think about the, the word of uh, selflessness or emptiness or not preoccupation with personal self. And they, they were joining it with humility, and they said uh, the, the real definition of humility is not that you think less of yourself, but you think of yourself less. <laughs> and I, I thought it was a very interesting turn of words, that you think of yourself less. And I find that I go back and forth. I am held captive by my story until I'm not. 
And when I'm not, I'm much more at ease, even though what I might be thinking about is saddening to me and troubling to me and um, evokes dismay or pain. So I was saying to that group yesterday, as I've said to you many times, that when we share that 10 minutes and it's over, I think to myself, there isn't a single Dharma talk that I could think of giving that would be more useful to me than listening to uh, essentially a reminder about what a struggle it is to be a human being, what a vast palette of challenges happen, travails for the body and mind. Every week I hear about this happening and that happening. You know, it's not that it's an exotic illness. It's just that there are so many ways that the body can be in pain and the mind can be in pain. That's actually what I've been reading in this book about uh, what the Buddha thought. And I'm going to talk about a little bit more about various levels of pain and a better suffering and a better understanding that I'm getting of it. I was thinking as, as just one of the reflections that I had this morning, just you hear this and you think, oh, you hear that, and you think, oh. And there, at two points, so there were, somebody shared about somebody who's struggling now but temporarily thought they were better, got, a, got a, a, one of those uh, good reports from their medical staff. The biopsy came out good. The numbers went down. Everything, yay, good. And it lasts for a certain while, and then it doesn't. Or somebody has a biopsy, and it comes back the other way. Oh. And you know how much the mind falls down and picks up. We want so much to be well, you know, no matter how much we know. I think to myself about, um, you know, that 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 life is that life is a temporal experience. That you don't know when it's going to end. That you never know that death is a normal part of the cycle of life and birth. And nobody, pretty much nobody, nobody who was alive 150 years ago is alive now, and not so many, a hundred. But we all pass, and we all know it. But nevertheless, to be parted from what we love and from our own life, so hard. And then I was thinking, not unrelated to that, that... Um, Well, this is how it worked a little bit, the, the connection in my mind. It just came to me, actually, while we were sitting this morning. I want to read to you from a passage from a novel that I read last week. But I was thinking about how when we hear news, sad news, this is happening, that's happening, even personally, so-and-so is sick, so-and-so is struggling, and in the social structures, you know, this health path, care didn't pass, that didn't happen, this war didn't end, this one is escalating. All the ways in which the mind feels, oh, and is really beleaguered by it. And still, the, the tremendous capacity the mind has also to pick itself up when it gets hopeful, say it might change. I was thinking today, yesterday, was a year from last election day. And we were beside ourselves, do you remember that? We were yaying and hooraying. And, uh, I remember that. Who, who was here last year on the day after Election Day? 
Do you remember we came in and somebody said, would it be all right if we all shouted and applauded? You know, this is not a shouting and applauding venue usually, but we all shouted and applauded and we had, you know, because we, we, human beings incredibly have hope. It's an amazing thing. That whole business about hope springs eternal. It's true. Someone phones up and says, these numbers went down and the biopsy is clear. Ah, was really excited about it. I was thinking about that capacity of the human heart to pick itself up and to get excited. When I first started to practice Dharma, when I first got interested, and I, I was about 40 years old when I went on my first retreat, learned about what the Buddha taught, and I was particularly um, consoled by the teachings of suffering. That um, Remember I told you that my friend, my friend and colleague, Howie Cohn, said, the first time I heard someone teach the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, he said, I cried. It was so reassuring for him to know that uh, the First Noble Truth is life is, um, that the, the real translation of dukkha isn't that it's suffering, but that it's unsatisfactory, it's, it's undependable. You can't count on it for enduring happiness. And he said, you know, I'm so, I was so consoled to hear that because otherwise I thought it was my own melancholy mind that was making it up that this is so tragic and that the existential situation of human beings is so sad. It's just true. It's not my, as my teacher Joseph Goldstein would have said, it's not sad, Sylvia, it's true. Uh, sad is the extra story that you say about it. It's your, your editorial opinion about it. But you know, if you if you wanted else, you came to the wrong planet. You know, this on this planet, in on this planet, things are temporal. Um, that doesn't make them not painful when they pass. That's the thing. When I heard the Four Noble Truths at a more melancholy and frightened time of my life, I was very, very consoled by them, and particularly by the notion—not the notion, by the by the truth that what was painful to me in life became more painful when I was, um, if I was unable to accept it. The second noble truth is suffering in life is the imperative in the mind that things be different from the way they are. They are the way they are. And it's imperative, the Buddha said, that complicates the mind, that ties it worse in knots. It is what it is. We all know people in desperate situations who say, I don't like this situation, but it's what I've got. It's you know, somehow my lot in life. And they're not compounding it with, it should be different. I can hear the voices of all my teachers saying, the, the whole idea, it should be different. It can't be different. It's like this. If it, was, if it could have been different, it might have been different. But everything is how it is because of the way that everything has happened in the whole history of the world. The, uh, the, the very idea, it should be different because I would like it to be different. Mm -hmm. It's very trivial to say, but the thought that always pops into my mind at this point is my mother-in-law, long of blessed memory, who used to open the door and say, just my luck, it's raining. It's not just her luck. I mean, you know, it's the, the world does not happen on account of any particular person. You know, <laughs> You know, may it not rain. I'm not in charge. You know that. Um, 
But the whole idea that we are not part of the whole cosmic flow of arising and passing away, we, we, we make an effect though by what we do and not nothing. And we're, we're, I think, mandated to do something because not doing something is also doing something and has an effect. The election was the way it was last year because we all voted. If we hadn't voted, it would have been different. And we're still voting, and every day I, I, I count myself to be a member of the Church of MoveOn.org because I, I am a daily <laughs> I am a daily communicant with them. I really listen to them every day. I, they send money, I send money. I mean, I do what I can, but I was very consoled by the idea that uh, the end of imperative was a possibility, that I could transform my mind from uh, not only the pain of what was happening, but the double pain of imperative that it should not be happening, and uh, the idea that life would become manageable then. And I remember writing about that and thinking about that and teaching about it, and using that very word that life is manageable, it's doable, it's a feasible activity life. Um, and I, I remember at one point sitting at a teacher meeting with uh, all of my colleagues at the time, 10, 15 years ago, because I remember we were much younger. And we meet then, we met then as we do now, four, six times a year. And we start with a go around. Everybody says what's going on in their life. And everybody had something, you know, my, I am struggling with this illness, my partner is struggling with such and such an illness, my child, my mother, my this, my that, my income my mortgage, whatever it is. And I, I was listening to everybody around the room telling their stuff, and I was thinking to myself, what was absent, or what seemed to me absent, was um, taking it personally. What, was, was, what seemed absent was agonizing about that it was happening. People shared this is happening, and they were managing. And so I, I remember writing about it, and I said what consoled me is the fact that life was difficult, but we could manage. So manage was a great word for me 15 years ago. And then at some point I began to think, you know, in addition to manage, you really um, appreciate every once in a while, particularly when I see or hear or I'm privy to how people manage under all kinds of circumstances. I really appreciate, you know, human beings are really incredible. All these things happen to them. And they keep on going, you know, they get up again the next day. They try again, moveon.org, you know, that kind of, keep on going. Um, not just move on, but everybody, all of us, every single one of the people who spoke and even the people who didn't speak, because everybody's got, we all got up this morning and we got dressed and we came out with our own travail, other people's, we manage. And we, uh, we, we do it so well, so I thought, well, Maybe I'll stop saying managing, and I'll say appreciating. And then some years later, I would say, I, started, I switched over from appreciating to celebrating. Because it seemed to me that the thing that was really extraordinary about human beings is that maybe in the awareness that we are all, it's all a razor's edge, and it's day to day, and you don't know and you don't get an insurance policy on life. What did I hear? Uh, I heard an ad on, on the radio as I was driving along. It said, in the event of your death, 
like it was a possibility that it might not happen, you know, that you could buy some kind of an insurance policy for that. You know, that, uh, <laughs> I had a terrible ad yesterday, I hate to say. <laughs> the ad was, uh, Christmas will be less expensive at Marshall's. I thought to myself, wait a minute, there's something wrong with that ad. Christmas is not, so, you're not supposed to think about Christmas in terms of it less or more expensive. That's not what it's about, guys. But anyway, no one was asking me. <laughs> and it's an editing virus that I have. I listen to things and I edit them. <laughs> so I thought we could, we, we really could, we really do celebrate, you know. Nevertheless, that it's hard and nevertheless that we are incredibly challenged all the time by letting go of this and letting go of that and letting go of something else. When we make it to something, we make it to another birthday, it's a miracle, you know, and we celebrate and we make a fuss about it, send cards about it. Uh, and that, that capacity for celebrate. I was thinking one more this morning. So I went from manage to appreciate to celebrate. I think we could bless. That's the next step. And I thought about it. I thought over these 30-some years of thinking about Dharma, I've gone from manage to appreciate to celebrate to bless. Because there's something uh, intimately connected to the realization that human beings are so amazing. In the spite of everything, in the face of death, in the face of disappointment, we carry on and we take care of each other. I, you know, yesterday I was particularly aware of it because I was sitting in a room of people whose whole entire vocation was taking care of people in trouble. You know that uh, all of us take care of our our kin when they're in trouble, and our friends and the people that we know. And sometimes we choose vocations, not better or worse, but be, from our personal aptitudes, we choose to uh, do something else because we, we're a violinist or, a, or we could teach geometry, all noble and wonderful things to do. But it's a really a tremendous thing to think somebody has dedicated their lives to, to really taking care of other people. And I think human beings, I think we all in our hearts really want to do that. We're urged to do that. Some people are, find that they move into that as a, as a vocation. But I think we're all tremendously, um, I think we're good, and that our, no, our, our impulse is to try to get up tomorrow and try to take care of a few more people. All of us, those of us who do it for a living and those not. And that when we're not self-preoccupied, we can. And maybe because as human beings, we have the gift of uh, seeing outside the suffering. You know, there's a, there's a cartoon that my, uh, I remember it from time to time, and you may have heard me tell it at some other time, that my friend Guy Armstrong carries around with him um, that has three or four boxes in it. And the first box has a, a, a reptile creeping out of the sea, some sort of amphibious creature, 
creeping up on land, and you see in its thought bubble, it's thinking about, um, it's thinking um, eat, survive, procreate. And then you see the next one, and you see some mammal, a mastodon, or some dinosaur, or a mammal, mammal, mastodon, early elephant, lumbering along, and it's thinking eat, survive, procreate. And then the next picture, the next block, you see a monkey swinging in the trees, and it's thinking eat, survive, procreate. And in the fourth box, you see a human being sitting on a rock at the seashore, looking up at the sky, and thinking, I wonder what it's about. <laughs> you know, that human beings start to wonder, what's it about? How did I get here? This is amazing. What should I do next? Do you want to hear my story? Human beings are storytelling animals. They make up stories about what's up there, what's in here, what happened, what might have happened. I just noticed somewhere the other day that yet another iteration of The Gods Must Be Crazy is now circulating. Do you remember seeing that, The Gods Must Be Crazy? Another iteration has come out. I don't, you know, I haven't seen it. But I think that, that not to mock that at all, or anybody's religious, <laughs> God forbid, you know, but and really I'm playing on that. But uh, that, that the religious impulse to think, what's it about? What are we doing here? How can I feel better? And how can I make other people feel better? I think that's a uniquely human thing. Maybe even the piece that says, hooray, that we can make each other feel better. That self-consciousness that human beings can manifest as compassionate beings. Um, the psalm line is a little lower than the angels. You know, I'm not thinking so much. You know, that it's angelic. It's not so much lower. There's actually a, a, a story told about the Buddha. Um, a teaching from the Buddha that the realm of being born into a human incarnation is the best realm of all because it has the possibility of the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys, which really hones the heart and uh, inclines it towards compassion. So that it's, much, uh, it's a much more challenging realm than the angelic realm. And in, in classical Buddhism, there are realms. The angelic realm, the Buddha said, there's no problem. So the, an, the angels can't improve themselves or refine anything because nothing happens to disturb them. It's a, it's, that you have to be a human being to have disturbances to transform your heart to love. This is a book called The Season of Migration to the North. Uh, the author is Tayeb Saleh, if I've said that right. And he is according to the writing on the back of the book, he was, this book in 19, 2001 was selected by a panel of Arab writers and critics as the most important Arab novel of the 20th century. So I thought, whoa, I have to read that. And I read it, and it's very beautiful, very, very beautiful. The writing, the, 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 the translator is clearly... Uh, a beautiful writer in English as well as in Arabic. It was written in Arabic. And actually this man, Tayeb Ta Saleh, 
also was, um, he died uh, in uh, 1951, uh, was also um, uh, fluent in English and studied in London, but wrote it in Arabic. And um, it's, a, it's a mysterious kind of a book. It, it, uh, it tells a story, but um, it tells a story where you sometimes don't know whether this is allegory or this is the real story. It's mysterious, like... Um, mm, Garcia Marquez, maybe. It's like mysterious in the way of you keep shaking your hand. Is this really happening or is this a dream sequence? It's very much about um, uh, of a, uh, a social commentary about uh, the sequelae of oppression, about 20th century was one in which many... Um, um, countries in the Middle East and in Africa gained their independence after years of having been taken over by European, uh, really, oppressive, invading, invading powers. And having gained their independence, he makes the point that having been oppressed for a long time, that oppressed peoples, when they get their own independence, find uh, it is found often, or it seems often, have manifest the oppression of the oppressors and then need generations to balance back from that. So it's a very important book about oppressions of all kinds in all kinds of areas. Uh, and it's also a personal story in between. So all of those. And it, it reads like music. You, the, the, the word choice is amazing. So that I just want to read you this one little part. It's musing about um, a caravan. In the, uh, He was born in the Sudan, by the way, this particular author. And he's describing a caravan of uh, nomadic travelers. And you don't know whether this is about a... But he was not a, of a nomadic tribe. Don't know if he's talking about him or whether he's talking about actual peoples or whether he's talking about life through the metaphor of a Sudanese metaphor of vast deserts. Anyway, so much for the lead-in. He says, thousands of people die every day. Were we to pause and consider why each one of them had died and how, what would happen to us, the living? The world goes on whether we choose for it to do so or in defiance of us. And I, like millions of mankind, walk and move, generally by force of habit, in a long caravan that ascends and descends and camps and then proceeds on its way. Life in this caravan is not altogether bad. That's the line I have underlined. Here it is. It's talking about life goes on and on, a never-ending caravan. I remember seeing a long time ago um, a, uh, a cartoon by some noted um, uh, social cartoonist with showing a, a, a conveyor belt uh, in a room that had an entrance and an exit door. And uh, you could see a child coming in this door and a bigger person, bigger person, bigger person, bigger person, bent over person and an exit door. And it had a sign over the conveyor belt and it said, no, um, no loitering. <laughs> 
And I remember it, it hurt my feelings, that cartoon. I didn't like it. I, I thought it was kind of bitter. It, it, uh, I thought it was a, a, an unhappy, it is an unhappy view of life, you know. You get on and you get off and no loitering. I mean, this, you, could, you could draw it another way. But, um, so you're reading this along, a long caravan that ascends and descends and camps and proceeds on its way. Then it says, life in this caravan is not altogether bad. You are no doubt aware of this. The going may be hard by day, the wilderness sweeping out before us like shoreless seas. We pour with sweat, our, threats are, our throats are parched with thirst, and we reach the frontier beyond which we think we cannot go. Then the sun sets, the air grows cool, and millions of stars twinkle in the sky. We eat and drink, and the singer of the caravan breaks into song. Some of us pray in a group behind the sheikh. Others form ourselves into circles to dance and sing and clap. Above us, the sky is warm and compassionate. Sometimes we travel by night for as long as we have a mind to, and when the white thread is distinguished from the black, we say, when dawn breaks, the travelers are thankful that they have journeyed by night. If occasionally we're deceived by a mirage, and if our heads feverish from the action of heat and thirst sometimes bubble with ideas devoid of any basis of validity, no harm is done. The specters of night dissolve with the dawn. The fever of day is cooled by the night breeze. Is there any alternative? I think that's beautiful. Don't you think that's beautiful? The title of the book is Season of Migration to the North. And I got it on Amazon. And what page is it on? 51. So I want to put that together with the Metta Sutta. Strangely enough. Or not. Thank you. The other line in this, I'll go back to it for a second. Life in this caravan is not all bad. For the other line that uh, caused me to pick it out. The sun sets, the air grows cool. Millions of stars twinkle in the sky. We eat and drink, and the singer of the caravan breaks into song. Some people pray. Other people dance and sing and clap. And I thought to myself, that's really the whole story with human beings. We labor on, we labor on, we labor on, we labor on. We fall down to rest or lie down to rest when we can't go anymore. And in between, we dance and we sing and we clap. We have that capacity as human beings. We're not only storytellers, we're song makers and celebrators. And some of us pray. And that praying, which I would, for which I would say praying and also hoping and also wishing and also holding out hope for, I think is a human quality. Someone told me a very odd thing yesterday. I don't know whether it's true. Maybe someone here is a veterinarian. Someone here a veterinarian? Someone says the reason that your dog makes such a fuss about you 
when you come home is that they're not sure you're coming back. No. Do you think so, Mo? Or no? I don't know. Someone told me that yesterday. They said they had it on good authority that the dog gets so excited because when you leave, they have no idea that you're coming back. I don't think so. I think maybe they What do you think? I mean, we say to it, I'll be back later, as if they speak English, you know, but, but I don't know. But I, I think of human beings as holding out hope. We know that we're sick. We know that we understand the expression, the medicine is not working. There is no hope now. Uh, or people will say the doctors have given up hope. But we keep on hoping. Even when we pray here for people, and who will pass from this world soon, we hope that their passing won't be so difficult. There's always something that we hope for. We are hopeful animals. We hope. And I think that that, you know, somehow in my mind, what's come together, at least this morning, is there is something about life, and maybe it's the appreciating and the celebrating, and the singing and the telling stories and the clapping that somehow balances the truth of suffering and ends us up somewhere in between where life is worthwhile. It's not a nihilistic view. It's not to say, that, well, if it all ends. I guess that, that particular cartoon where people are just falling off the conveyor belt so there's no loitering is, is so discouraging because it's a... Um, who was the cartoonist in the uh, Pfeiffer, Jules Pfeiffer? It has a very Jules Pfeiffer kind of a feeling about it. Um, in the 50s and 60s, Jules Pfeiffer was a cartoonist where uh, it was always a bleak feeling about human beings. And the, and the caption was, also, was often, people are no damn good. So it's a, it's a view. But I think it's the opposite of, George, uh, of Jules Pfeiffer. I think people are extraordinary. And that they do amazing things, and in the face of everything, they not only sing and dance and clap. And so, one more story, and then we'll do the loving kindness teaching. Um, someone gave my friend Jack Cornfield a, a um, present of two tickets to the opera last week, and he invited me to go with him. And I love opera, and uh, the opera was the daughter of the regiment. And uh, if you know it, uh, the opera aficionados know. What do you know about it? Well, it's very joyful. It is very joyful. It ends well. Yes, it's not a tragic opera. And a whole regiment of men raise a little girl in the most delightful and playful way so that she's a very strong woman. She is. She's a great woman. She's, there are only a few women in the cast, actually, in this whole regiment of men. And it's completely a farce. But in the end, the, true lover, the two lovers, in fact, live on and can spend happily ever after. They do not die in a tomb singing away, you know, which often happens, or get killed by mistake or whatever. They, they live at the end. And it's also very well known because there's a particular tenor aria in it in which the tenor is required to hit high C nine times in a row and it, with a note in between. Da, 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 da. And you can count them, and we did as he went through it. And it's a tremendous tenor 
accomplishment. Very few people could do it. Luciano Pavarotti could do it. Uh, I forgot his name. Krauss could do it. Not many people can do it easily. Uh, a friend of mine, I, went, I talked to a friend of mine in the orchestra in the intermission, and uh, I said, you know, the audience really became crazed. Didn't they? they always do. It's a showstopper. Everyone knows it's coming up. And when it happens, everybody gets wild about it. In the same way, I mean, you would never applaud in the middle of a symphony when the soloist has played some great little passage. But in the middle of the opera, someone does that. It's exactly like so-and-so has just done a three-and-a-half gainer backwards off a high board. You know, they just <laughs> applaud. So, so I said that everybody was wild about it, and it looked like he did those high Cs so easily. And uh, Brian said to me, well, actually, he sings them C-sharp. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I, and, and he's a little man. He's a, he's a little Peruvian man, small, not a big, you know, belt out. Belt out these nine high C-sharps. C and, and people were wild. And, we, and Jack and I also, you, you get really excited to see someone do something really well. It's like 14 pirouettes without putting your foot down or a three and a half gainer off the high board backwards or when a human being has obviously used so much effort to, uh, to develop an accomplishment that's, uh, that Donizetti wrote, that somebody else thought of, that other people, musicians, learned how to play. It's such a coming together of talent and effort and all these people did it. So it's not that you come in this door and go out that door and nothing happens in between. You come in this door, you go out that door, and in between you can do a lot of things that can give a lot of pleasure to a lot of people. Now look around, and we had come from a whole day of Spirit Rock meetings that were quite complicated and difficult, and, and all of a sudden you feel like your mind is so exalted. And I didn't sing that aria, but somebody did, not me. Somebody did, and other people enjoyed it. And thinking about the capacity of human beings to do extraordinary things, to train their bodies and minds and creativity and intelligence, that there is suffering in life, but there is so much beauty and so much imagination. One more thing to say on that, because I don't want to forget to tell you. There's a book called The Measure of Our Days, which I don't have with me now, because I lent it to somebody by Jerome... Groupman, G-R-O-O-P-M-A-N. And if you would like to read a book about contemporary medicine as practiced, very high-tech, high, amazing, brilliant uh, medical interventions with very, very difficult diseases by a very, very compassionate caregiver, physician, who loves his patients and has written a book about 50, uh, several books, but one of them about 15 case studies. It's both amazing to read to see what modern people, modern minds have figured out to, to cure this disease or at least put it in remission or that disease can do the most amazing thing. So it's very, very tremendously detailed which drugs and which operations and which bone transplants and which this and which that. But also in between how told in the voice of the physician who actually loves his people 
and holds their hands and cries with them and talks to them. And he says, Alex, you know, we're going to do, we're going to beat this. And Alex says, Jerry, I'm counting on you to do it. I mean, really, it's, it's so gives you a sense of the nobility of human caring. So uh, it's really a tremendous um, boon to the spirit. May it be that you're not sick or anything like that, but it's just so ennobling to think about people. This is the entire of the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha's teaching, the whole Buddha Dharma, the Dharma talk. In uh, I think I figured it out last week, 42 lines. I'm not sure it's something like that. The first 12 lines are a teaching on morality. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I love that. Is it, you know, when you think about, that's such a nice way to put it, not doing the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. That pretty well covers, you know, that it's unwise to do anything that's not cognizant of the needs of others. That's what that means, that this is a relational world and that one's own happiness depends on being cognizant of the needs of others. It's tremendously important to realize that, I think, because Westerners particularly often, uh, or at least up to now, uh, and maybe not so much anymore, as uh, the teachings of the Buddha become more widely known, have associated Buddhism with meditation. And in truth, in the world, very few Buddhists, there are a billion Buddhists out there, very few meditate. For the most part, it's a practice of recognizing the extreme morality, not extreme, precise uh, morality that the Buddha taught. Really, it's a, um, it's a practice for most Buddhists in Asia, many Buddhists in this country, of aligning themselves with a path of kindness. The Buddha was known, was said to have in his previous incarnations completely manifested every possible virtue of the heart, generosity and morality and renunciation and patience and truthfulness and five others as well. Wisdom, uh, loving kindness, equanimity, truthfulness, and energy. And it was as having uh, actually completely uh, consolidated those virtues that allowed him his comprehensive understanding of the cause and end of suffering. So for most people, Buddhism is a, is a religion of morality. Um, sometimes I hear people say that no war was ever fought in the name of the Buddha. I think that's true. It's also true that in the, um, in the time that the Dharma first came to Japan, um, in the era of samurai, uh, that there were discord between different samurai. 
my, my teacher's understanding of the Dharma is better than yours. It became a, a thing that people used as a thing of fighting about. It's also true that um, um, there was a misuse of zazen in, uh, in my view, a misuse in uh, um, backing the war effort in Japan in the Second World War. And that's very well documented now and out in public knowledge and people feeling badly about it now because it's definitely not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught if anybody, if you are offended by anyone um, for any reason or hurt by anyone and you make them your enemy and strike back, you're not a disciple of mine. So that's really, it's a teaching of peaceful response in any circumstance. But backed by morality, not doing the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. So those 12, I think, lines are the teaching on morality. The next 25 lines are the teaching of mind practice, really, of the transformation of the habit of mind from animosity or enmity or um, aversive response to kindness and to tolerance. Wishing in gladness and safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, I'm going to stop for a minute. I'm going to tell you I saw a bumper sticker last week in Marin, you know, where it said, uh, you know, people are still having bumper stickers all over the back of their car. Uh, and it said, uh, I want to do this right. Uh, I'm pretty sure it said, God bless absolutely everyone. And I thought that was great. I really liked that as a bumper sticker. It was also in a bunch of other political stickers that I approved of around it. So, but I, I actually liked that. God bless absolutely everyone. I like that very much because it's become more or less expected that political figures now giving political talks on television should end by saying, God bless America. And I really liked that said, God bless absolutely everyone. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen or the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise anyone in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm about upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, just so should we towards all beings. Just so, with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. That's the practice instruction. That's really what we're supposed to do internally. The first 12 lines are how do we behave in the community. The next 25 lines, one should sustain that recollection. May everyone be well. Bless you, bless you, bless you. May you be well. It's the antidote to aversion in the mind. You can't be mad at anyone who at the same time, not because you're a blessing machine, but because you're wise enough to know 
that everyone who stays alive is having a hard time of it, to really bless them out of compassion. I understand that better and better every year. I used to not understand this so well. When I first read this um, teaching 20 years ago, maybe more, I read that and I had a cavalier response to it, I'm uh, sorry to say. I thought to myself, this is all well and good. Here's the Buddha saying, you got to wish well to everybody no matter what, but it's not saying how, why? How are you going to do that? Because I have plenty of people that when I think about them, I think, er, you know, I don't think, you know, and wishing well doesn't exactly come to mind immediately. <laughs> and so I say, here's this, you know, teaching, which is, in a sense, reads like the Nike ad, just do it, you know. And I said, well, how are we going to just do it? But I actually think it's in it. This is how you just do it. You actually practice morality precisely because if you do it, then your mind doesn't get clouded. You're always thinking not so much of yourself. Think of yourself less, not less of yourself. Think of yourself less. You see out there that people are all struggling. Everybody is all struggling. That morality slows you down so that you can see a little bit. You slow down, you see a little bit, you see what's going on out there. You see everybody's in trouble. May they be sustained in their difficulty. Just what we do here when we pray for people at the end of our sitting. And not only for the people that we're praying for, but for ourselves, because really the blessing mind is the most, for me, the really most dependable refuge for my own mind. It is the antidote or the, actually the vaccine against the arising of ill will, which is a flu of the mind, you know, it gets in there and, and it's not good for you. Not good for me. This is said to be the sublime abiding. And this last five lines, this is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires is not born again into this world. Maybe when we come back together the next time, maybe if I remember that I plan to do that. <laughs> I could forget, but if I remember, that's really worth us spending a whole morning about because I don't think it means that we cease to be sensual beings or we don't have sense needs or sense. I mean, we still, we, we remain human beings in bodies like animals and we, uh, we, we want to sing and dance and clap and go to the opera and eat and all the other things that, that beings want to do to keep their minds and bodies comfortable. I don't think it means you stop wanting to do that. I think it means the pain of the um, grip of imperative about any of those things is, is modified. Maybe the grip of imperative can disappear. The urges which are often wholesome, don't have to disappear. The pain of an imperative can disappear. It isn't what I wanted, but what's what I got. Because I'm very interested, when we meet again, which will be in several weeks, I am studying this book about what the Buddha thought and what he told Barbara.
young woman in Richmond who was assaulted mm -hmm. and her family and yeah. how they have presented themselves as other people have done in things like this, urging us, begging us not to turn it into a moment of more violence. Yeah. And I just I think that is such a a hopeful and sort of unbelievable thing. But other people have done that too. And just hoping that the message in all of this that we're we're reading and talking about May that happen. May that happen. May that happen. Maybe because it's 11 o'clock, maybe because we all know and we've all heard it on the news, maybe we should sit for a minute and think about that woman and her family and the ongoing unfolding of that really terrible, terribly sad thing. That had happened to everyone who was involved. Everyone. Young boys. In the spirit of that wisdom, those last five lines are the wisdom, the wisdom of compassion, the wisdom of non-imperative. May we all not be born again into moments of sorrow, of suffering, days of suffering, by the confusion of our own minds. And may that message, there's another way to live, there's another response. May that message really sustain that family, that, that family of all the people, this community, all communities. May the community of people who really know that love and compassion and understanding and wisdom are really the answer. May that community spread in the world. Thank you very much for being here. When am I back? Not at all in November. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.